0: Hello, and welcome to the Contours podcast by the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. My name is Carolyn Mormon, an analyst and content coordinator, and this is the first episode in a two-part series on the ongoing crisis in Sudan. In this episode, you'll hear from New Lines Senior Director David Rakow on the conflict itself. The next episode features Riley Motor, a senior analyst, to discuss regional and global ramifications of the conflict. David Roko is the Senior Director for Political Systems Analysis at New Lines. Prior to joining the Institute, he served for more than 13 years as a working-level diplomat, political analyst and advisor, and head of office in United Nations Field Missions in Afghanistan and Libya, as well as Sudan from 2008 to 2011, and South Sudan from 2011 to 2012. Before we begin, here's a little bit of an intro to the conflict. On April 15th, clashes between the Sudanese Armed Forces And the rapid support forces broke out in the capital city of Khartoum and in the Darfur region of Sudan. The war between these two rival military groups comes after months of disputes. The two sides worked together to oust the civilian prime minister in October 2012. But as negotiations over the division of power stalled, it led to increased tensions, which escalated into the armed conflict we are seeing today. David, thank you so much for joining the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: For our first question, I'm wondering what your analysis is of the recent ceasefire we saw over the weekend between the Sudanese army and the RAP support forces. This is the first official pledge agreed to by both parties to have an internationally supported monitoring mechanism led by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. How long do you think this ceasefire will hold?
1: Well, I mean, on its face, the agreement itself says that the ceasefire is for a week, is for seven days. That doesn't necessarily tell us all that much, because on one hand, Attempts at ceasefires have repeatedly broken down in this conflict already, and if it does last for seven days, there will undoubtedly be enormous pressure from the Saudis and the U.S. to try and extend it. What we have seen so far, however, it raises a lot of questions. There have been a number of reports of continued fighting since the ceasefire went into effect, including some Air Force activities and some artillery, as well as firefights. Now, That's significant because if we have firefights, sometimes those happen because you have local disputes between individual commanders or mistakes that are made and fights break out along a a line of contention. Whereas if you have heavy weapons like artillery or something like the aircraft flying, that obviously requires a much more planned and strategic decision. All of which is to say we really don't know this ceasefire could break down today. It could last for. Three weeks, it could last for a year. I wouldn't bet on a year.
0: Well, thank you for emphasizing the constant state of confusion and lack of information about this massive crisis. We recently saw the Biden administration announce $254 million of humanitarian aid to Sudan and the neighboring countries. I'm wondering if you think this is moving in the right direction and if this is enough for the magnitude of the crisis.
1: I think more aid is probably better. I don't know if this is. New aid or aid is being repurposed or if it's, you know, if this is new money, then that's always going to be a good thing in and of itself. Again, the situation gets more complicated when you look at the details. I can't tell you how useful this aid is going to be because I don't know who it's being allocated to. I don't know what specific kinds of aid it's supposed to be used for, who is in charge of overseeing that it gets done properly. Is it going through UN channels? Is it going through USAID channels? All of those questions are really important to understand whether it's going to be useful and helpful. And we don't have that information yet. I think if, if that information will that we come, but the early announcement is doesn't have anything more than that. And without that, it's hard to say. If, as it sounds like, you know, we're talking about humanitarian assistance, things like water and sanitation support, food support, non-food items which are critical for life as a a refugee or or an internally displaced person, those are all critically needed at this moment. But not only are they critically needed, but they have to get to the right place, be delivered in the right way, and, and that part of it we don't know.
0: So moving from the U.S. to the role of the U.N., you've spent a majority of your career involved intimately in missions in multiple conflict zones. And I'm wondering, what role do you see the U.N. playing in Sudan? Do you expect the U.N. peacekeeping forces would be a good introduction into the conflict? Or is Sudan, in your mind, too complicated of a conflict for the U.N. to try to help the situation for the people of Sudan?
1: It's not a question of too complicated or complicated enough. The U.N. is deeply involved in some very, very extremely complicated places. It's it's a question of if the specific kind of complicated is such that it gives the U.N., Leverage and capacity to act, right? It's important to note that there is a UN mission there right now. There's a UN special political mission in Sudan right now. There's a special representative for the secretary general in, he I believe is in New York today because he's been reporting to the security council, but there is an active mission for Sudan. It's not a mission that has peacekeeping forces. And I suspect that there won't be peacekeeping forces. There are myths around what armed UN troops can do, and the expectations are often much higher than what can reasonably be done with armed UN troops. And there are some exceptions. Look at you know, DRC and Mali and a few other places. But the vast majority of UN missions do not have armed, blue-helmeted UN troops, and I suspect that that will be the case here as well. I, I don't think that, that a, a UN forces is likely to be helpful as far as the political involvement. If you take out the peacekeeping element of it, most U.N. missions kind of have two pillars that they are are focused on. One pillar is the coordination and support for humanitarian aid. That is absolutely critical. And having a mission performing that role, which is separate from the actually handing the food to people, the coordination and, and facilitation stuff. If you don't have that, aid doesn't get delivered in a lot of places. And so that's absolutely critical. The other pillar is political engagement and what kind of political engagement can happen really depends on what what leverage the UN has, how much the players are concerned with engaging with the UN, how much the players care about what the UN thinks, what the international community thinks also depends on sort of how much weight the international community gives the UN mission. If the U S and the EU and other uh, and, you know, Russia, China and whoever else say the UN has this role and we're going to back the UN in this role. That gives mission a lot more political weight and a lot more capacity to do things. All those right now are big question marks, right, on the political side. I think the UN is doing what it can at the moment as far as trying to mediate, and trying to provide expertise and, and for trying to keep eyes on sort of what's happening and keeping the details from slipping through the cracks. But it's also important to recognize this. The UN was not a player. I think there was some probably some technical support, but the UN was not a mediator in the ceasefire negotiations. Special representative for the secretary general was not present during those negotiations. It was U.S. representatives and Saudi representatives and the two parties.
0: So moving towards that ceasefire negotiation, We've seen that a heated topic for a lot of US policymakers is this role of Chinese influence in Africa. Do you see any potential for this increasing due to the Sudanese conflict? How does Chinese influence fit into this?
1: The Chinese don't have a big dog in this fight, I don't believe. There has been historically a lot of Chinese involvement for years now in Sudan in Japan's oil infrastructure. But it's not at least as far as I know, and I, it's entirely possible I'm missing something. There's no Chinese policy to favor one side or the other. Um, and if you're looking beyond these two parties, which ideally you should in terms of long-term policy for Sudan, there's no indication that the Chinese government is interested in if there are threats to the oil infrastructure that may change.
0: I guess we'll have to keep watching for any kind of developments on that front. Moving to another area of your time that you've spent in Africa, we're looking at reports of massive flows of refugees spreading throughout the continent, particularly as Riley will discuss when she comes on the podcast into egypt and also, I'm wondering, based on your time on the ground, how do you think these refugee flows, specifically in South Sudan, will affect the situation?
1: I think you know, there are a number of issues that one of them is is the refugee flows. I just saw a figure, and I haven't been able to confirm it independently, but I saw a figure this morning that suggested that 90 percent of those of the refugees flowing into South Sudan are actually South Sudanese who were refugees in the north. A lot of this could be people that are South Sudanese nationality, the nationals, and, and are running home. But some of those people may never have lived in South Sudan before. They may have been their entire life in the north. Those refugees are coming from a position where they didn't have any money. They probably didn't have much to work with where they were. And now they're coming to South Sudan and have nothing. Obviously, very disruptive. It's going to, you know, shake up the economy depending on where people settle. Um, the where people settle part is a big question because we underestimate how big these two countries are. South Sudan and Sudan together are the size of Western Europe. Right. So if all of these refugees end up in Juba, that's one thing. If They are spread throughout the country. That's an entirely different kind of challenge. Other issues I think that we need to look at are things like. All of this is drawing attention away from the peace process that's going on in South Sudan. South Sudan has its own civil war that it is getting over or trying to get past, Uh, whether it's over or not is a question. And international assistance and attention on implementing that peace process is an important part of it, and that all of that attention is being pulled north. Other things include a great deal of the population that live on the border between the north and the south cross that border regularly, and one of the regular sources of local conflict in the region is cattle migration, cattle migration, and you know you get cattle herders that move through settled populations as they migrate, and those migration paths aren't limited to one country or the other. Armed people moving around, got more armed people than possibly there used to be because there's a lot of fighting going on, and these are situations that are volatile to begin with, and so the risk of more fighting, and some of these conflicts, you know, we, we don't necessarily pay most attention to them, but when you're talking about fights over that uh, cattle migration are often extremely bloody and, and really horrific. And that too early to say with, and we don't have enough data how this conflict affects those kinds of tensions. We don't know.
0: And that's something that a lot of people that aren't very closely monitoring the situation will not catch on. Moving to a more macro level topic throughout your career, you've spent time in areas of the world, such as most recently Afghanistan where conflict is endemic, there are multiple armed actors involved. I'm wondering if you can compare and contrast for us a little bit of most recently Afghanistan and the unfolding conflict in Sudan and how they compare and contrast with each other and what else you've experienced in other zones.
1: It's, it's a tricky one because the current situation in Sudan, it doesn't fit into a lot of patterns, right? What you have in Sudan is the two Parties to the military conflict are both remnants of the previous regime, right? And they both control elements of the infrastructure that was left behind by the previous regime. Neither of them really had a major civilian constituency. They're not representing a political movement. They're not representing an ethnic group. They're not representing, you know, a geographic constituency so much of people that support them. They're not the armed element of that kind of political constituency, which is unusual, just very unusual, right? Usually, particularly if you have a conflict that goes on for any time, you need some sort of public support to maintain, you know, the military action. This conflict is, hasn't been going on that long in the scheme of things. It's obviously horrific that it's gone as long as it has, but, you know, it's, it's possible that they can support that kind of action without a lot of public support for the length of time that they're doing it. The other issue is they're able to do this because they have control over these pieces of the previous government. right? And that allowed, has given them a lot of money, it's given them a lot of support, and it means that they can act without really any consideration of keeping people happy or not, uh, which is what they're doing at the moment, right? The one side of it that is sort of, that you can kind of draw parallels, I think, is the external involvement. You've got, you know, the Egyptians backing one side. You've got one of the, the political players in Libya backing the other side. You've got players in the Gulf backing one or both sides. And I don't have the data on exactly how much support we're talking about, weapons, money, etc. But that, you know, that's always a sort of a toxic blend Any any conflict where you've got people pouring in support that are in no way accountable to the people who are suffering. And we obviously saw that in Afghanistan quite a bit.
0: Well, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. People will have different opinions. But Sudan's crisis has not made the news, maybe, because it has not expanded to the level in which Afghanistan expanded. And hopefully, everything aside, that does not occur. David, thank you so much for joining the podcast. To our listeners, thank you for joining this conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Contours on major streaming platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify, so you don't miss any of our new podcasts. And you can check out further analysis into geopolitics and U.S. foreign policy at www.newlines.org. All the best.